You are listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast exploring scripture with Dr. T. Michael W. Halcombe and Dr. Frederick J. Long. Welcome and enjoy. Hello and welcome to Proof Text, uh, a podcast not of proof texts, but of proving texts. So I'm here with uh, Dr. Fred Long. I'm Dr. Michael Halcombe. Fred, you want to remind folks uh, what the name Prove Text yeah, so uh, our, means? Or? Yeah, so Michael came up with this brilliant title, Prove, uh, which means to you know make a case for something. And so Prove Text has to, what we have in mind is just that we need to substantiate our claims well, reason well, argue well from the text. We adopt an evidential approach and, you know, not all evidence lines up the same way. And so we have to negotiate, you know, which evidence has priority over other evidence. And uh, so we're about truth and talking about matters of scripture and theology and even formation. And so, yeah, we're not into proof texting. We don't want to just cite references or pull verses out of context just because it sounds good and makes our point, but we want to be thoughtful in our use and application of scripture in our exegesis, our interpretation, our theology, and our living. Mm-hmm. Yes, thanks. So um, on the docket today, uh, we our, our topic, uh, we're dealing with uh, how, <laughs> the question, how has your theology changed since you first became a Christian. Uh, there's, there's probably a lot of things that we, we could talk about, but Fred, do you want to go first? Do you want me to throw a topic out there first? What, how do you want to do this? Yeah, I'd be glad to share. Thanks. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I was raised a United Methodist, and I had a sense of God's presence and calling in my life, but I didn't, wasn't able to really act on that. I didn't have enough knowledge really until until um, my senior year in high school a friend came and talked to me and shared the faith and you know I responded to an altar call and so when I went to college and university I went really just as a young believer and I determined in my mind not to be involved with drugs and partying and girls and that kind of stuff so I uh, I got involved with some bible studies and I really began to grow I just opened up scripture um, I got involved with some Pentecostal folks. And so, you know, very early on, I was exposed and really encouraged to speak in tongues. And I would say probably one of the, one of the ways that I've changed the most is just how I view tongue speaking. And, um, huh, of course I read a book by John MacArthur, the charismatics, which was just a slam on, on that. Um, and I've, I've pulled back, but and I'm very charismatic. I would say I'm very charismatic, very open to the gifts of the spirit, leading of the spirit. It's just mm. that I don't believe in tongue speaking as is often done. That is untranslated. Um, mm, right. I see the need for translation and edification of tongues um, for people. So that, that takes us into interpreting first uh, Corinthians 12 to 14, but um I've spent a lot of time on, on those chapters, but uh, that's, that's one area that I've changed was just, you know, being open to these experiences and then, yeah. ca- you know, being cautious and then discerning and then trying to be real scriptural in my belief. So I wonder if this might yeah. be an example of where 
you, you were mentioning evidential and sometimes the evidence lines up differently. Uh, I, don't, I don't know your perspective on this. I wonder if this might be uh, an issue where you and I, uh, our evidence doesn't line up differently. So I'm curious to find that out. When you think about uh, tongue speaking, do you think that it is a, a celestial sort of angelic language or do you take the perspective that these are these verses are referring to human languages or do you have a different view human languages yeah i think um well yeah when paul says or speak in the language of angels you know if i if i have speak with the tongues of men so i'm in 13 1 first corinthians 13 1 if i speak with the tongues of men and of angels but don't have love i become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal um mm -hmm. He, he does the same structure in verse two and then in verse three, where he starts out with a basic possibility and then ramps it up into an extreme. Right. Yep. Uh, so if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, well, that's not possible. <laughs> um, and so he does that again. If I give my positions to the feed the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned, that's another extreme, but actually relates to part of the context. And that is that Paul, throughout these chapters, Paul is appealing to their pagan past. In fact, he begins chapter 12 by appealing to being led astray as they were being led astray to mute or dumb idols. And so this idea of, of clanging cymbals, noisy gongs, submitting your body to be burned, these were actually religious things. These, these were phenomena that occurred in religious settings and, and speaking and losing your mind, coming, going out of your mind and, and losing control of your body to such that you're speaking different utterances was actually a sign of a divine possession in a pagan context. So in an essay, actually in an edited volume by you, Michael, I talk about this, um, uh, a prophecy of tongues as a, as a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. And what that means right. is that tongue speaking, this kind of ecstatic speech where you lose control of your vocal organ, it was actually a sign that demarcated was a sign for unbelievers mm. that you are possessed of a God. And this word sign, again, is technical religious language for divine possession and so the sine qua non sign of being possessed by a spirit was speaking in different voices and singing with crescendo and these kinds of things so i think what was happening was paul was confronting kind of a confusion on the corinthians by bringing in some pagan practices into their christian worship it's called syncretism when you blend right. religious experiences with other religious experience that kind of blending is called syncretism It's very common and so it's interesting to see how paul tries to urge them towards uh spiritual gifts but but particularly intelligibility when it comes to tongue speaking hmm. i don't know what's what's your view of that i actually i i agree with man a lot of that um i I think that he's referring to human languages, not sort of celestial. Yes, I think yes. what you were talking about there at the beginning of 13, where he's given these hypotheticals and then ramping them up. I think that's yeah. exactly 
I think yeah. that's the exact right way to understand that. I yeah. think in, in the next chapter in 14, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, when he's talking about, I still think he's talking about human languages. Um, and yes. my perspective I actually was going to dissertate on this. I, I had mm. uh, three or four chapters on this done, and then I, I, I switched my, my focus. But uh, I think. Well, you should get another degree, Michael. I, I think you need to add more letters behind your name. Um, well, I, I think when you look at ancient uh, Corinth during Paul's time, right, it, it had uh, become an outpost for the Roman Empire uh, to bring war captives in and to bring slaves in because the city of Rome had been filled up. There was no space left for all these uh, captives and all these slaves. And so what Rome was doing was going out and conquering all these, these mm. uh, lands and bringing in these foreign slaves into Corinth. And this is at the time that Paul was hanging around Corinth. And so you have all these foreign speakers coming in. And what we need to understand is that uh, in just about every culture, uh, linguistics teaches us about what's known as a prestige dialect. Right? When we see that in America, all the debates over English versus Spanish were English is viewed as this sort of prestige dialect. Well, yeah. in, in Paul's time, especially in, in Corinth with its Roman roots, Latin and Greek were the, the prestige dialects. And so to have all these foreign slaves coming in, speaking different languages, that caused a lot of uh, a social angst. And, uh, and particularly as the, the, these foreigners would come into the church and they didn't know Greek or they didn't know Latin they couldn't understand what was being said. And so yes. they were speaking in these foreign languages. But the elites, the elites were getting frustrated by that because to, to come down to a, a slave's language or a barbarian's language uh, was to, to lose social prestige, right? And, and so I think what Paul is telling them in 1 Corinthians 14 is he, he's saying, actually, you need to be humble and be open to... Uh, the spirit moving in you to to understand and translate and interpret the the foreign languages of these mm -hmm. people being brought in. Interesting. Uh, yeah. he, he's saying, as it stands, you social elites have closed yourselves off to the spirit working in you and equipping you with the ability to do that. Um, and so you need to open yourself back up. I think that's what he's saying. Um, Interesting. Yeah. 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 So just, I think, I think this is a common area where a lot of Christians grow, you know, just understanding spiritual gifts and, you know, we get kind of anxious at first and like, how many are there? You know, do we all have the same gift? Right. Uh, you know, and particularly this one was, was really pushed hard on me, but you know, Paul at the end of chapter 12, he asks these questions. Do all, are all apostles or all prophets or all teachers are all speaking in tongues well, in, in the Greek text, these questions actually expect a negative answer. In Greek, you can ask questions that expect a positive answer, questions mm -hmm. that expect a negative answer, or that are open-ended questions. These are not open-ended questions. These begin with may, may, the adverb may, which expects a negative answer. So when people push, you know, like we all should be speaking in tongues, it violates actually what Paul writes there. No, we don't all speak in tongues. 
in, in a certain kind of tongues, but we, we, we're, we don't all have the same gift. So there's right. a variety of giftings. Yeah. Um, another area uh, that I've changed a lot was my, my view of women in ministry. Hmm. So I didn't think that women could be pastors or should be pastors. You know, I took a, right. a, a certain kind of literalistic understanding of passages in the pastoral epistles and elsewhere. And uh, then I came to seminary and I started meeting these women who were preparing for ministry. And I'm like, boy, I just don't agree with that. I remember having a talk with some of them and just saying, I disagree. You know, I, I read these passages and it seems to prohibit it. And they're like, no, I, it doesn't prohibit it. And besides, God has called me to do this. And I remember just being kind of struck by that as like, who am I to say what God is calling someone to do, you right. know, where it's not obviously immoral in some, you know, calling them to do something immoral, but, you know, a, a person being called to ministry. Well, actually, a lot of my research, a good, you know, I've got a couple of essays now and articles written on this topic. I presented at the Wheaton Conference on Women in Ministry, and my essay is, was collected, included in the essay, the, the conference papers, Mm-hmm. And it was called um, uh, Christ's Gifted Bride, Gendered Members in Ministry in Acts and Paul. And uh, basically, I looked at the gift lists in, that are found in Romans and Ephesians and here in 1 Corinthians. And at the beginning of Acts, uh, there's a listing of you know, prof- prophecy. And what I realized was that there's no gender restrictions given Mm, right there's no gender restrictions and in fact acts in acts 2 it says that your women women will prophesy and your young men and old men will see dreams and your male servants and female servants will prophesy you know everyone's going to have the spirit at that point too i realized that paul uh, peter's quoting from joel and this prophecy is coming from joel where and joel's getting it from um, Moses in Numbers, where he's exasperated because uh, someone's complaining that the spirit uh, was still falling on certain people, and Joshua comes to him in a complaint, and Moses says, "This is not a problem." He says, "Oh, that all of God's people would have the spirit." Right. And so he, he makes a statement in kind of an, an exasperated way, but it's a powerful statement, and so Joel picks that up. This becomes part of the eschatological vision. And then Peter quotes Joel and that, that verse in, in Acts, those verses in Acts 2 at the birth of the church show the gender inclusiveness of the spirit of God and the outpouring of the spirit and the gifting of prophecy. And, and by the way, the prophesying that, that uh, was going on with in Numbers, I think it's Numbers 11, those were leaders of the church. Those were leaders of God's people at the time that Moses was selecting people. God said, I'll, I'll send my spirit. And these, these men will, these leaders will of help. the tribes, these leaders, leaders of the tribe will help you with your work. And so in other words, uh, you know, prophesying is a leadership gift. Right. Um, and so then another article that I've written, and you can find it online, a PDF of it, it's called um, a wife in relation to a husband. And then I look I forget the subtitle exactly, but it's looking at 1 Timothy 2, where Paul says, I don't permit a wife to, well, it's translated oftentimes, I don't permit a wife to teach or have authority over her husband. 
Well, in the Greek text, it's simply, um, well, woman. Yeah, it's translated, often translated as a woman. I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority right. over a man. But in fact, the word there uh, for man and woman are, whenever they're paired in, in the New Testament, they're referring to husband-wife relationships. Right. And that changes the whole interpretation of the passage. And I lay out the cultural background for this. I, I talk about how in the previous verse, Paul has talked about women in general, how they should dress. And then he switches to a singular. And then he's talking about a wife, a, a woman in relation to a man. And in that cultural context, that really could have only invoked one sort of relationship. Well, maybe two, maybe a, a, a harlot, you know, prostitute with a man or a married woman with her husband. And in mm. fact, Paul goes on to talk about the first married couple in the context, Adam and Eve. He also talks about childbearing and raising right. of children. So obviously he's talking about a home context. And so we have to mm. contextualize that verse. He's not talking about women in general. He's talking about a wife in relation to her husband, which in that cultural context, most wives were decades younger than their husband and were uneducated. And it was just, it looked socially wrong for a wife to be teaching her husband. And so mm -hmm. he rather advises them to learn, but to do so in submission to their husband and quietly. And so he's, he's while Paul is advocating for education of, of a wife, he's also prohibiting a, a certain activity of teaching because that would have been seen as problematic. It reminds me of missionaries in China. Uh, un, the, the, a lot of them were women, and they weren't supposed to teach the men. So what did they do? Well, they, they put a, a paper wall divider in a room so the men were on one side of the wall, but they could hear. And then the missionary, the female missionary, was on the other side teaching the women. <laughs> so they were kind of following the social mores right. of the time, right? technically, but but then also finding a workaround so that the men could also be taught. Yeah. Anyway, those yeah. are two areas that I've changed in my view. Excellent. I, yeah, I would, uh, the, the, I've changed in both of those as well. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, those are, I guess still in, in some circles, right. Still hot button issues. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. but, well, we're going to take a break here and hear a word from our sponsor briefly, uh, our sponsor, Glosa House, and then we'll be right back. So listen to this. Thanks for listening to Prove Text, a Glosa House podcast. As a way of saying thanks to you and to kick off 2021, we want to give you 15% off all our resources this week. Use the code PROVETEXT21 at checkout. That's all caps, P-R-O-V-E-T-E-X-T, and the number 21. Again, thanks so much for listening and enjoy the rest of the episode. Glosa House, language resources for the global community. All right, welcome back to episode three of the Prove Text podcast. We're discussing uh, places where our theology has changed since we first became believers, since we first became Christians. Um, Fred had brought up the issues of tongue speaking and then uh, women in ministry. Uh, I'm curious what, what I've, I've stolen yours. What are you going to talk about? Um, so I, 
I think uh, a, a place for me, like when I first became a Christian, um, I was moving in some Southern Baptist circles and grateful for those folks who sort of nurtured yes. me um, in the faith, yeah. um, but have also had my perspective shift quite a bit. Um, and some of it was regional, uh, not just denominational, but on teachings of the rapture. Uh, that That's a big one where uh, my theology has really, really shifted. Uh, that That's a teaching that at present I, I reject and I, I no longer subscribe to. And I think that uh, scripturally, it just can't really be substantiated. I think historically it, it can't be substantiated. It's a very young uh, doctrine, although there are those who tried to, um, you know, have its tentacles reach way back into uh, early <laughs> church history. But uh, I don't, I, I don't think that's uh, quite accurate and, and can be done with uh, the ease that they suspect it can be done. But um yeah, you know, there's uh, several passages like Matthew 24, uh, yeah. verses 37 to 41, yeah. where f- folks use that to, excuse me, talk about a rapture. Um, and then yeah. we have uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18, uh, which folks use. And then Revelation 4, 1 yeah. to 2. And those are like the three sort of um, the base texts for uh, proponents of the rapture and you know, um, that, that's just something I've had to unsubscribe to, something I've had to let go. I, I think it's a, I know I'll probably upset some listeners or offend some folks, but I, I just think it's a bankrupt eschatology and um, it's done yeah. way more damage than, than any good it could have done. Yeah, it's a yeah. doctrine that developed in the 1800s, actually. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. So, it, um, from from a from the dream of a vision from a teenage girl. Yeah, Margaret Mitchell was her name. Yeah. Um, she, she was attending that revival, and she was attending a revival and had a dream, and uh, went to the 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 preacher and explained it to him, and they went to the scriptures to try to substantiate it, and uh, yeah. lo and behold, that's where. Yeah. That's where the, the doctrine uh, grew out of. How do you, why do you, why do you think that doctrine has become, become so widespread? I mean, I think, I think the average Christian would believe in, in a rapture happening in some yep. way. Yeah. Um, I, um, I, I think that it gives a picture of, of quick and final justice um, and I, th- I think mm-hmm. there's an attraction uh, to people about that. I, I escapism, think also, I think. Yeah, escapism, think escapism too. That, and that's the reason it flourished, right? It, it, it yeah. was it was birthed during a time of war, and people were ready to uh, get out of here. Yeah. Um, what, and what war is that? The Civil War. Yeah, the Civil War. Yeah. And um, that's how it. You know it one of the social reasons it spread so rapidly across the United States. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think that escapism is incredibly attractive to people. And, and, you know, there's an underlying aspect to that, that, uh, and I, I literally had a church elder, a very, very wealthy guy tell me one time, um, <laughs> he, he kind of mixed this, uh, this rapture view with the prosperity view and the sort of light reform view. And he, he literally told me 
you know, before the foundations of the world, God destined, predestined that I would be wealthy. And he wants me mm. to enjoy that. He wants me to enjoy that wealth here and now before I go. Boy, it'd be sinful if he didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so there's this there's this underlying strand among some folks like that, not everybody, but some folks like that, that uh, we, we can live it up here now. And, you know, that's, that's part of my, uh, one of my big frustrations with all these prophecy watch people. And they're obsessed with reading the newspaper headlines, Jack Van Empey and Rexella Van Empey and all these um, prophecy watch people who are constantly looking for, for signs that the end might be near yeah. And I, I'm wondering, yeah. why are you so obsessed? Because, yeah. you know, if if yeah. you're constantly watching for signs, then that oh, that yeah. seems like a clue to me that as long yeah. as you're not seeing the signs, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. yeah. However you want. Yeah, there was a show in South Bend area that I would listen to just because it aggravated me. But they, they were very good on the radio, but it was called Politics and Religion. And boy, mm. they were just so convincing and just, right. you know, they're counting down the seals and they're correlating them to this. And we could be, it could be just around the corner. This, it could just be, you know, we're right there, you know, and well, I'm wondering what they're saying now. It's been 13 years, you know, right. like, like <laughs> how are they pivoting, continuing to pivot? Um, right. It really just irritated me. Um I think I think it, this view really got popularized because of the Bibles. You got the Schofield yeah, Bible, right. and then you have Ryrie Study Bible, and mm-hmm. then the teacher teachers, uh, you know, they, they they lay it out in these charts, these very elaborate charts, and so right. it just captivated people's visual imagination because they could see it. You know, this kind of certain eschatology laid out, so it became right. part of a larger eschatological system that then was just really taught very hard and then found in these very popular Bibles. Yeah. And in addition to that, I mean, you have the novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, the whole left behind uh, thing, the whole left behind saga. And that obviously was made into a motion, major motion pictures, right into a movie. (laughs) And um, yeah, I I think that that like in time sci-fi is is also pretty intriguing to people. Oh, Um, yeah, I love it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's easy to become become enthralled with that sort of thing. And when that uh, Left Behind movie series came out, well, one thing (laughs) that almost scared me into heaven was uh, (laughs) the thief in the night. Yes. <laughs> movie when I was like in sixth grade, I was like, you know, ready to believe then, but you know, I didn't know really how, but that scared the kajibis out of me. But, um, yeah. but I was teaching at this college when the left behind uh, movie came out and one of my students sent this campus wide email to everybody. And that was kind of odd that you could do that. Like now we wouldn't think that right. would be possible, but, but it, it happened. And I re- responded to the whole campus at the same time. And I said, you know, he's like urging, every, you know, we got to support this Christian movie, you know, and go mm. see it. And I responded back and I said, well, you know, there's many different ways and views that Orthodox Christians have understood the end times. And this is one way and a very disputed way. And, I'm not sure that this is the best way to evangelize people because it's like we're airing our dirty laundry before them. Right. Yeah. Um, 
the, the, the fear actually, tactic. I got, I got called in with the president. <laughs> he called me into his office and he said, surely there will be critiquers of the left behind and, and legitimate critiquers of the left behind series, but I don't want one of them to be one of my faculty. <laughs> wow. Well, one of the uh, board members was one of the authors of that series. Oh, wow. I actually had his son in my class. That wasn't the wow. one who sent the email out, but oh uh, yeah, it's funny. funny. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's a... I wasn't fired, but I was threatened. <laughs> well, you, you also had, right at the same time, I mean, you had the this full-on media hit with the books, the movies. Uh, yes. Was it Larry, Larry Norman's song? You remember that? I wish we'd all been ready. And DC Talk had pop, uh, uh -huh. repopularized that. No, um, so you're... I didn't know yeah. about those songs. You're yeah. in music a little bit more than I am. Yeah, so they... We're hip. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big one for me um, and just things like Armageddon and really learning yeah. to read like Revelation. If you read that closely, you actually realize that Armageddon's not an event. It's it's a place, but Armageddon, Har but, yeah. um, you know, all kinds of interesting stuff there. We could talk a lot about that, but do you, that's one do you, of the... Do you, have one, do you have one more that you can share? Change? Hmm. Oh, man. Um, I guess I another, kind of stole yeah. two of them. No, no that's all right. One? I mean... Uh, I, yeah, I, I used to be uh, deep into the sort of six day, seven day creationist kind of camp um, and reading Genesis along those sort of scientific ways uh, or lines. Um, and that's, that, that's fine if folks want to do that. It is what it is. But for me, I've had sort of a shift where uh, I, I don't think that Genesis is meant to Genesis one yeah. and two in particular. I don't yeah. think it's meant to be read as a scientific crack. Um, yeah. or a scientific treatise yeah i think it's i think it's yeah. more like theological or historical poetry and yeah um and i i think when you you make that genre shift uh yeah. something something even grander and, and deeper and substantive yeah. happens and um I, I think there's even a little bit of comedy there in in genesis uh one if i'm honest um i, I think that Moses, whoever the author is of that, is sort of poking fun at other creation myths during that time. Yes, yes, certainly. And, um, so yeah. there's this comedic aspect of it as well. Yeah, some poking some fun. Yeah, I I agree with that. Yeah, that that uh, if you look at it, you know, a lot of times we talk about interpreting the Bible liter literally. People, you know, they want a right. literal interpretation. That's not the best mode of interpretation the best mode is literary right. literary yeah. interpretation literarily yeah Liter exactly. to interpret it literarily so what kind of literary genre is genesis one through three it's not a scientific manual it right. is a creation account and in the ancient mesopotamian world you had alternative creation accounts uh you have egyptian and akkadian babylonian and and as you mentioned, um, there's lots in common, but probably more differences, but in common with these other creation accounts. And I think you're right, poking fun at, at some of these other uh, accounts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that, that one, I got to admit, though, that was one of the hard, hardest ones mm. to sort of relinquish when I, yeah. when I, first, when I yeah. first started making that shift. It was very uncomfortable for me. And, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So, well, uh, thanks, Fred, for sharing. Um, at you the too. end of our episodes, we, we like to have a parting thought or a parting shot. And uh, it's a quote or a poem or a statement or just something we've been ruminating on that we'll leave with you, dear listener, and uh, to think on in addition to the things that we've been talking about here. So uh, today I'm up to give you our parting shot. And uh, it's a quote from a guy named Stephen Wright. And it says this, if at first you don't succeed, then skydiving definitely isn't for you. <laughs> so, <laughs> there you go. Very good. Uh, yes. And I, right. speaking yeah, as a skydiver, you've skydived, but I haven't, but yeah, I might want to. But yeah. yeah. Well, once you get up here to uh, Oahu, we'll get you up on a plane, man. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, I'd like to do that. Well, thank you guys for listening. We're going to wrap this episode up. And uh, as we say here on the island, when we're parting ways, ahui ho, which means until we see you again or so long. So, ahui ho. Bye-bye.